0: we mm-hmm. This is Chris, welcome to episode 229 of x labs Where we are on the eve of X-Men number 1 Believe it or not, I feel like it's taken a long time to get here uh, I'm Trying to remember exactly the first time we heard That X-Men was going to be uh, relaunched with a new number 1 it Feels like a really long time ago Anyway, that's not for today That's next time Today we're going to be talking about X-Force, volume 6, number 21 which had a September 2021 cover date And uh, reminds me that I remember the first time I realized that this was volume 6 of X-Force I thought it was uh, thats a high number for a volume And uh, here we are about to kick off volume 6 of the flagship book in just next episode Anyway, enough about that The story is called Fear of a Green Planet Written by Benjamin Percy with art by Joshua Cassara and Robert Gill Colors, Guru EFX, letters, VCs, Joe Magna designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman Edits, Amaro, Basso, White, Cebulski, cover price, four bucks, went on sale July Seven of 2021 Now we open, deep, deep, deep in flashback land uh, We are on the coast of Washington State, and that's a few months ago That timeline doesn't really work, but, uh, yeah, we'll get there Now, Sage has called in X-Force to deal with a nuclear spill from the Warroad site. Now, far as I can tell, this Warroad site is not a real place, and that's probably a good thing, considering that they just dumped a bunch of nuke waste into Puget Sound, so I couldn't imagine that it would make for good PR for an actual facility called, you know, Warroad. Even if this is in a comic book that only a few thousand folks will read. So, now why does X-Force need to go there? Well, because this waste threatens Krakoa. I mean, I think it's a long way from Washington State to Krakoa, but I won't argue. So, X-Force pops in at the nearest Krakoan gate, which happens to be around five miles north of the spill. From here, we shift scenes to one mile south of the spill, where a grandmother and granddaughter are looking for the perfect sand dollar. And wow, this uh, takes me back to living in a place that had actual water around it. Um... I don't think sand dollar hunting is a big deal here in Arizona, though. I suppose I could be wrong. Anyway, the kiddo finds a perfect sand dollar and goes to run into the surf to pick it up. Only, there's a war-road mutated whale there ready to eat her. Thankfully, something that looks like the man-thing is also there, and he lunges out of the drink to grab the girl and her abuelita to pull them to safety. Now, this scene plays out right as X-Force are getting down to the business of cleaning the beach with their forge-made decorporating fungal agents. It's like they kind of look like uh, they're wearing, like, Ghostbuster backpacks, just blasting these decorporating agents <laughs> into the uh, into the pollutant. Um, now, as they do so, Quentin Quire, who... Okay, he's in his brand-new costume months ago. Doesn't really work here um, Especially since we started getting like Hard and fast timelines here Where like X Swords Was only like a week or two before The Hellfire Gala And still Quentin Quire changed his costume Like right before the Hellfire Gala But somehow that's months ago uh, we, won't, we won't worry about that I mean they, they pay editors to do that Anyway, Quentin Quire In his brand new costume He spies a fisherman's boat in distress Now, a war-road-mutated seal is attacking the fisherman, and all Quentin is able to telepathically feel is the burning touch of fear. No hate, though, just fear. Uh, Now, the fisherman, he's then wrapped up in a vine-like appendage and pulled to safety by what appears to be Man-Thing. Well, Wolverine mistakes Man-Thing's act of kindness as him being the big bad of the issue. And so he lunges at him, claws out stabbing him through the chest with all six of them. Now, the Man-Thing responds by spitting a corrosive something or another right into Logan's face. Now, while our runt tries pulling it off, Man-Thing flees the scene. Now, while the team reconnoiters, Forge sprays Wolverine with some of that defungal stuff so the glop falls off his face. Now, Wolverine claims not to know what that big green monster was. Really? Wolverine's never heard of or seen Man-Thing before? I mean, Wolverine knows everybody, okay. Uh, Forge comments that it looked familiar, and he grabs some of the goop to study later on. Domino then helps the fisherman to his feet, where he confirms that the big green monster is actually trying to save him, not harm him. So, double-page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters include Domino, Sage, Forge, Kid Omega, Wolverine, and Beast. Present day, back at the point. Now, Sage and Beast are there talking about that nuke spill from a few months ago. And the results of the goop are in. And Sage has been able to confirm that there are, uh, appear to be many, many man-things running about. Makes me wonder if, like, didn't we just do a man-thing story? Can't we just call Magic and the Dark Riders in to take care of this? In a footnote? You know, um, without having to read... I'm kidding, I'm kidding. This actually veers into somewhat interesting territory here. Sage fills Beast in on other sightings of this green goop, and how it's being used to mess with allies and partners of Krokoa. Now, first, we see Walter Whitmer, a CEO of a big corporation who worked with Xavier Businesses. He wakes up in a Zurich hotel room covered in the green stuff, with a video camera pointed in his direction. Now, he looks to his left to see a man in bed with him. Only thing is, the man has had his throat cut. His phone rings, and on the other end, someone makes him an offer. If he were to cut ties with Krakoa, this little inconvenient situation could just go away. It's blackmail, you see. Next up, Marsha Culpepper, a lawmaker in Washington, D.C. She and a Senator Raleigh are very rah-rah Krakoa. And, well, uh, looks like she just shot him in cold blood in broad daylight on the street. Um, And she's tackled to the ground by D.C.'s finest. And uh, as she's being cuffed, she pukes up some of that green goop. Then, finally, Florinda Nunez of the NYPD runs up to Quentin Quire and his cuckoo. Now, it's clear that she's been given the orders to shoot and kill them, which is pretty adorable, because, I mean, aren't they... Well, I was going to say Quentin's an Omega mutant, but he dies every third page, so I suppose this is rather plausible. Anyway, she's able to stop herself from doing so, and is rendered into a pile of... Well, the art's not entirely clear here. It might be some of the goop, it might be ashes, it might be a mixture of ashes and goop... Whatever it is, it ain't uh, it ain't human anymore And it ain't alive either Back to the point Now this turns into an opportunity for Sage to rub some salt into the Beast's wounds here uh, Regarding using plant technology to control people Just like he did with the entire nation of Terra Verde Beast doesn't even flinch I mean, why should he? He knows what he did, right? And he, And I mean, at the end of the day, it seems like he's rather unrepentant over it You know? He doesn't seem to care. Uh, Now, he claims that this looks to be something born out of the Ted Salas Man-Things Serum. Now, Sage mentions multiple discovery. Now, the concept of multiple discovery is, uh... Well, it's a sign that uh, Ben Percy read the M volume of the encyclopedia this week. But it is a concept that posits that many people may make the same discoveries or create the same things at around the same time should certain conditions be right. And it's funny in a meta way, too, because Man-Thing and DC's Swamp Thing hit right around the same time, and uh, we could get into the nitty-gritty on how the creators of both characters were like roommates, or how they're both rip-offs of the heap anyway, or we can take it a step further and talk about the X-Men and the Doom Patrol, but we won't. We won't. Anyway, Beast decides it's time for X-Force to head back to the Pacific Northwest, which only reminds me that it's been two years since my last vacation up in Washington, and that, uh... That really bums me out Anyway, it looks like it. this is a different Man-Thing that they're tracking As in, not Ted Salas Now, a bit of research, which we will get into deeper in a little bit Reveals that Ben Percy actually created this other Man-Thing during a Weapon Plus one-shot And I'm pretty sure that's the one we're going to be dealing with here Not that it much matters to me A Man-Thing is a Man-Thing is a Man-Thing I'm going to be bored either way Okay, info page Now, Sage is tracking the man-thing, and this is uh, one named Strode, and we'll get deeper into him as we go Now this man-thing is in Washington State, you see Not sure why we needed a whole info page to tell us that, since we kind of already knew So back to comics, and we see this newish man-thing rescuing a boy from a pack of wolves in the middle of the woods Then, X-Force arrives You see, that boy who was about to be eaten was just a manifestation of Quentin Quires in order to draw the Man-Thing out of hiding. Well, M.T. responds by hurling a glob of goo into QQ's mush. Wolverine then lunges at the Man-Thing. It's kind of what he does this issue. He lunges at the Man-Thing. And then Domino tosses a grenade at him with her gross Krakoan cannon gimmick. Wolverine tries to explain to the Man-Thing that uh, there are more like him out there. And he pleads with the monster to just stop and speak with them And so, the Man-Thing does He says he can't go back to where he came from Well, where might that be? That's Weapon Plus, of course Well, thankfully, X-Lapsed is in a post-Marvel Unlimited world now So uh, I can actually do a little bit of actual research and read this story I mean, as if I have the time Let's do a little brief look at this story this was Weapon Plus World War 4 Number 1. Had a March 2020 cover date. The story's called Weapon 4, or Weapon IV, if you will. By Benjamin Percy, Georges Genty, Wayne Foucher, Mark Deering, Rachel Rosenberg, and VCs Joe Sabino. Now, in this, stuff happened in Washington State. Yeah. This new man-thing, Jackson Strode, was captured in Russia and tortured with jumper cables until he transformed into the man-thing and killed his captors. He escapes via a Weapon Plus chopper, where he's given the Man-Thing antidote, but also one last mission, to save his brother, Philip Strode. We get a flashback to one year earlier in the Bogs of Alabama, where Weapon Plus steals Ted Salas' serum. Jackson Strode becomes an unwitting lab rat, and thus became this Man-Thing. Back to Washington State, the woods are full of man Thingified wildlife, and Strode is attacked by some sorta-kinda-zombified goofs, And so he blows them all away with his Liefeldian Mark 69 blaster. And he uses the word slaughter a few times in his narration, so, I mean, I'm guessing this is going to wind up being the manslaughter that we've seen in the solicits, right? Uh, The story has manslaughter eventually saving his brother by killing him, and then he kills the jerk-off who kept taunting him with the antidote before doing the lonely walk back into the woods. Now, it's worth noting, the logo for Weapon Plus is the Tom Muller-designed X, tilted on its side to look like a plus sign, which is pretty cool. And now I'm wondering if, like, these are stories we actually need to cover on the show. So I will leave that to you guys. Uh, what say you? Are these X-related enough to do deep dives on? Your wish is my command. I will uh, do whatever you guys want. I'm not sure how many there are. I think there are at least two or three of them, but... uh I mean, we can fill them in at the end of the, uh, the month and see how, they, see how they float. Just let me know what you think. Anyway, let's get back to the end of the issue we're actually reading here today. It's revealed that Weapon Plus is in cahoots with Xeno. I mean, it's, we're up to, what, issue 22 here? Xeno was introduced 22 issues ago. Well, are we finally coming back around to it? Hopefully. Uh, we do wrap up with an info page, and it's Cecilia Reyes' lab report on the goop. Now, she speaks of the plant tech going around, because it is going around. Krakoa, of course, Terra Verde, and this Man-Thing variant. And she even name-drops our new M.T. as manslaughter, And that's that. That wraps up this issue. Uh, next episode, we finally get to X-Men Volume 6, Number 1. And, uh, boy, I'm really, really looking forward to it. But, that's for next time. Now let's talk X-Force. And where do we even begin here? Um... Well, I suppose I could say that this was a better Man-Thing story Than the Man-Thing story we got before (laughs) When I saw that uh, a Man-Thing-looking thing thing was going to be in this book I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh This does not bode well for me Because uh, the Man-Thing is... uh, I find the Man-Thing very boring I still do But uh, this uh, variant on him is uh, a bit more interesting I do like that it's uh, kind of embracing And this isn't come from the X-Force story But the Weapon Plus story that we peeked in on that uh, this Man-Thing has, like, giant guns I mean, that's even the cover of the Weapon Plus issue It's Man-Thing with guns <laughs> it's, it's silly, it might be silly enough to work It might be something that would turn people off uh, In any event, uh, for me, it, uh, I don't want to say that it makes it more interesting Because that seems uh, like a weird thing to find interesting But, I mean, the Man-Thing in and of itself, to me, is quite boring that said, what we get here is pretty good. Um, I'm always a fan of a creator going back to something that they might have worked on a little bit ago and relating it to what they're working on now. So, while Man Thing again is very boring to me, um, the fact that Percy was able to take a story that he wrote a year plus ago and tie it into tie it into what he's doing now and make it, you know, no pun intended, pretty organic. Right? We're dealing with the Terra Verde stuff. We've got uh, plant technology. We have uh, Weapon Plus stealing plant technology from Ted Salas. It all kind of works out here, and it, it oddly reminds me of an earlier version of X Force here. Not, not so much in um, like the the meat and potatoes of the story, but in the marrying a an outside the X Family thing into an X Family book here. I remember uh, Uncanny X-Force, they brought Deathlock in. Which really, I mean, there's really no reason why Deathlock should be palling around with X-Force. And Deathlock is kind of a boring character, too. So here we have Man-Thing kind of being married into X-Force here. And uh, I don't know if this will be made permanent. I I don't know that I would mind if it was. Um, I think that could be a very interesting um, partnership between X-Force and uh, this Jackson-Strode Man-Thing. What else we got here? Um, Zeno, still lingering in the background here. I hope that we eventually wrap this story up. Um, I'm not looking for this series to end. I'm enjoying uh, bits and pieces of it here, but the Zeno thing, we got to get to the bottom of that soon. It's been lingering for way too long, and we're not getting enough information about these characters to make them interesting. All we know is that they're basically the Court of Owls. And it's like, okay... We gonna do something with them? (laughs) We just keep forgetting that they're there And then when we do see them, it's underwhelming Because they just haven't been built up properly So hopefully this is leading To some sort of closure in that regard here We are creeping up on our 25th issue If this actually goes 25 issues You never know with these books Uh, I think we've seen one solicit for an issue 25 And I think that was uh, Marauders Maybe it was Excalibur Maybe there were two that are up to their 25th In a few months, but uh Maybe the 25th issues are going to be big blow-off issues. Maybe they're going to be oversized. Maybe they'll have uh, gimmick covers. Uh, I really don't think I'd mind at this point. I think that'd be a nice little throwback. But hopefully as we get closer to issue 25, uh, we'll see a little bit of closure here. The art here was good. I have no complaints there. Uh, even though we did have an extra you know, cook in the kitchen, that still looked really, really good. It uh, fit the tone of uh, the X-Force book. And finally, I never, ever thought I'd say this, but... Uh, the issue felt a little bit decompressed, and I think it served the story. <laughs> I guess it's just been, I don't know, maybe a little bit of crossover fatigue, a lot of uh, rushing to get p- pieces into place before we did the Hellfire Gala to where, I don't know, maybe it felt like stories weren't getting the opportunity to breathe. And this one, it is a little bit decompressed, but uh, it's refreshingly decompressed. You know, we're getting time. To, uh, to get let these stories settle in, to let the nutrients of the storytelling kind of uh, take root. So, weird uh, praise from me, indeed. But uh, but yeah, it wasn't, uh, wasn't a half-bad issue. I'm looking forward to seeing what's next. But I think that's all I have to say about this one. Uh, before we get out of here, let's hop into the mailbag. Now we're going to start with Damien, who's writing in today about Excalibur number 20. Damien says, it's amazing how the best issue of Excalibur yet can break me in the first couple of pages. I'm currently working on a series within a series on my podcast, where I'm looking back at all the Marvel 25th anniversary issues with the celebratory border, and I'm starting to prep an episode about the issue of Web of Spider-Man set in London and featuring the IRA. There's a small part of me that can forgive the terrible depiction of the UK in a comic from 1986, when it was more difficult to get information about the reality of life in the UK, but... What's the excuse in 2021? They have British writers working on the X-Line. Couldn't they have asked one of them to check out the book for Americanisms? This entire rant is my way of declaring that no British person would ever refer to a soap opera as their stories. Never. It literally pulled me out of the book. Well, Damon, you gotta be careful there. I don't know if you're uh, suggesting that Teenie Howard didn't do research because uh, I don't think we're allowed to say that. But it is interesting that the things that will pull someone out here. I'm trying to think of uh, examples where I was pulled out of certain things. and I know there are some. I just can't really point to one right now, but I can totally understand like how that one little thing would be like, that's just just enough to kind of make you kind of make you pop out. Damien continues. Outside of this clangor, this was far superior to than the average issue of Excalibur. Even the Betsy and Quanon relationship felt appropriate and not overemphasized. They have turned Malice into Jericho, though, which explains how complicated her Polaris costume was. (laughs) And that is very true. Uh, The costume there was uh, Jerichoian, right? Um, For folks who don't know, uh, Jericho from the Teen Titans, he came into that book during the Judas Contract and had uh, one of the... You know, it's weird. You think about those costumes uh, from the 80s uh, The George Perez ones Where I've heard it said time and again And I'll say it again now George Perez's costumes only look good When George Perez draws them I don't know what it is If it's his talent If it's just his way of making the fabric flow Jericho's costume is horrible But it looks good under Perez's pencils Anyone else makes it look really, really bad So it's like uh, very overcomplicated (laughs) And it doesn't look too good too often. But allow me to agree with you that this was a stronger issue of Excalibur than we usually get. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it wasn't so otherworld-centric, right? I mean, this is something I've said from day one. When uh, Teenie Howard's given the opportunity to have just characters talking to one another and relating to one another and uh, just... Being in each other's company, without all the magical hoo-ha, the druids, and the, the wizards, and the Morgan Le Fay, it's actually quite enjoyable. You know, it's when we get into stuff like Otherworld, and over in X-Corp we get into... Well, we won't even talk about that right now, but, um, <laughs> there is good and there's bad, and uh, this one was good. Damien continues, Your fake-ass comics history was very interesting. I'm really surprised that it took so long for Marvel to give Malice an origin. Without your research, I would have guessed that they were reusing established continuity from when I wasn't reading the books. And I was just as surprised as you. Um, I, I figured that Malice already had something established. And uh, was very shocked to find out that this issue of uh, Excalibur was the first time they actually gave her any backstory. Very interesting. Damien continues. I'm reminded that around the time of the Muir Island Saga, I wrote up my own version of the Origin of Malice, where she was one of the three Dane triplets, Lorna, a.k.a. Polaris, Zara, a.k.a. Zaladane, and Mary Dane, who were the daughters of Magneto when he was possessed by the Shadow King. Their mother was some kind of elemental who was inhabited by the life force of the planet Earth. I think I was trying to create an earthly version of the Phoenix Force, which I intended to be transferred to Lorna Dane. I think I read about Chris Claremont wanting to use the Shadow King as the big bad guy for Uncanny 300, and I knew he was leaving, so I was trying to think how of how I would replace him. I really wish I'd kept a hold of all that kind of writing I did as a teenager. It was mostly terrible, but it showed how I felt about the characters back then, which is something hard to mentally reconstruct. Aw, oh, man, that would be cool if you were able to find that somehow. I love, you know, it's funny, you think about things like, like fan fiction or just, uh, Armchair booking, you know, like trying to plan out how things could go in a way—that's always so much fun to discuss here. Of course, fan fiction can go into a <laughs> very bizarre realm, but it can also add so much fun to the uh, to the fandom. I'm reminded of uh, there's one particular piece of fan fiction that I believe people at Marvel actually read and wanted to kind of. I think they unofficially considered it part of the canon. It was a New mutant story called Kid Dynamo, Young Dynamo. I think it was Kid Dynamo, which featured a. I mean, it had all the tropes of uh, of fan fiction, where you had this new character who was, you know, better than other characters here, and was meeting the the key members of the team. It was very tropey when you think about fan fiction, but it's one that. Uh, Apparently went over really well, and it's one that I've been trying to track down uh, for a little while now because I thought it would be fun to do just like a one-off uh, Sunday special episode on on Camp Dynamo, just talking about it and maybe introducing it to folks who uh, maybe came into the fandom a little bit after this little story might have made you know some waves, some headlines uh, in the in the fandom, of course. Back to Damien, he says, "I would say that the quality of this issue has raised my hopes for X Corp." But as I'm reviewing at a publication order, I know full well that X-Corp has gone down down like a cup of cold sick. (laughs) I genuinely don't recall there ever being a new book that I haven't seen anyone praise. I'm currently both dreading having to read it and looking forward to hearing your response. And wow, you know, I've heard a few people say bad things about that book, uh, myself included. But uh, I didn't know it was universally, or maybe not universally, but widely widely. Panned as being not the greatest thing in the world. I wonder if all those other reviewers found themselves with a one-star review on certain uh, aggregate sites. That'd be that'd be interesting to see. <laughs> but I am definitely looking forward to hearing your thoughts on X Corp. Number one. I think that's going to be a fun one to to discuss. To to do point counterpoint, maybe you know, become appreciative of what people like or don't like about a particularly Divisive, potentially divisive book But we will get there when we get there I want to thank you so much for writing in, Damien I'm always absolutely tickled when I wake up and have a few messages from you So thank you so much Next up, we're going to Evan, who's talking about Cable number 10 Now He says, I was starting to think the whole Arako thing was like a dream season on Dallas When we got the reminder that it actually happened And had repercussions while advancing the Cable narrative I'm half expecting Kid Cable to stick around and become the new X-Man. But you would think if that were the case, we would have seen umpteen solicits for it by now. And it's funny you mention a few of those things here. Um, the whole X thing was like the huge build-up to Arako coming to Earth and uh, nobody mentioning it. <laughs> it just kind of was there. We got the one issue where Iska took Magneto and Xavier there to kind of make fun of them. And then it was just Nothing. You know, uh, So in this Cable issue, for folks who maybe don't follow Cable uh, Cable and Cyclops are called in to deal with a couple of uh, Iraqian brutes Who were uh, messing around in a bar in England, I believe And they got into a fight with them and that was about it But it was a reminder that Arako is a thing And Arako is problematic on Earth Because different sort of mores and thinking they can just do whatever they want They're a warlike people, yada 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 so it was cool to see that. It was definitely cool to see that. And it also facilitated the conversation between Cyclops and Cable about bringing back the old man, which was really, really cool as well. It's funny you mention X-Men because the first time I saw Kid Cable, without context, I think it was when I was reading, maybe I was reading X-Men number one, uh, before I read Hoxpox, Pox, uh, before I knew anything about the new status quo, and you see this young Cable, I think I assumed that the old man Cable had died, and then X-Man just took the name Cable. So I didn't know about the whole jumping around through time thing. I think I just assumed that X-Man decided to ditch the X-Man name and just take Cable. Evan continues, I understand your Hellfire Gala prep fatigue, but in defense of Storm in Sword Number 5, it's not like she was ditching actual quiet council business. She was just punking on Fabian Cortez. I just hope all this Gala Hoopla doesn't interfere with the most pressing plotline ever. The connection between beautiful blonde British Brian Braddock's baby sister Betsy and Quanan. You may not remember this obscure bit of trivia, but they once switched bodies. Well, I gotta make a note of that. I, I, that one, you know, I, I feel like we hear about it every so often and every time I'm unprepared. So uh, we got to... Uh, Make a special note. Maybe we'll make a we'll make the X Labs bingo card. You know about Betsy and Quanon sharing a body, or splitting bodies, or trading bodies, and well, we'll we'll get we'll get that one in the memory banks uh, for sure. As far as the gala fatigue is concerned, it's weird. Like once we actually got to the gala, I feel like we heard less about the gala than we did leading up to the gala. <laughs> it's like every every conversation anybody had it's like oh yeah we have that party to prepare for hey let's let's get our costumes fitted let's uh let's plan the music list let's get the uh let's starf some celebrities and get them in here i mean ugh, i'm just glad it's over and i hope i hope we don't get another one next year and if we do get another one next year maybe just make it a single issue of marauders or an a, a marauders annual you know just shove it in there don't don't co-opt the entire line of books Please (laughs) But uh, that does it for Evan's message here Thank you so much for writing in We will wrap up with Meal Who's giving their thoughts on Maura McTaggart Now, if you listen to The 200th episode of the program here I had a lot of guests on And for each of those guests I asked, you know, what were your thoughts about Maura McTaggart when it was uh, decided she was a mutant when, she was, when it was decided she was alive um, And that was something I was also asking um, Different X-Men related Facebook groups And Instagram before I realized that uh, Well, I'd get more response if I just posted The Jim Lee X-Men number one Three or four times a day With, uh, with the right hashtags So uh, I kind of stopped doing that But anyway, I asked questions about People's thoughts on Maura here So Meal's writing in with theirs Miel says, the next email will be my review of the cable series, but for now, let's look back to the series that started it off and the major reveal that Mora McTaggart has always been a mutant. To which I have thoughts. Overall, I think it was a net positive. It really throws Mora into the murky grey area, which is fun, and it also makes the Proteus saga very fun. However, with it I have two problems. The first problem has to do with the legacy virus. Also known by its other name, Mutant AIDS. Now imagine if it was revealed that every single straight person that got AIDS was secretly gay. I'm very aware that's not how it works, but imagine the outrage. It would probably go back to being called grids, so I don't like that. And that's an excellent point. That's a really, really good point here, because I remember... When it was revealed that Mora did have the legacy virus, um, and of course, I mean, we're playing fast and loose with everything now because she never actually had, she she was a mutant, she is a mutant, but never had it. The golem they posed it. I, I mean, it's a hard one to kind of nail down here, but let's go back to the turn of the century, right, where it was revealed that not only did Mora, as a human, as far as we knew, had the had the mutant virus, the mutant AIDS, right, and would perish. Uh, from it, you know, right before the cure was discovered. It's a very important story. Um, I mean, the story doesn't mean quite as much now with everything we know, but I think it was telling that, you know, the X Men and Beast in particular kind of got up off their asses when the legacy virus was thought to be affecting humans, right? We had several years of various, you know, B, C, D level mutants Catching the virus and dying And every six or so months We'd see Beast holding a test tube Being like, oh yeah, I gotta get back onto this legacy virus thing Maybe maybe I'll cure it this year He'll, We saw him fill out his uh, New Year's resolutions You know, this year I'm gonna cure the legacy virus And then, of course he did not But uh, when Mora caught it And was uh, thought to be a human with it It kind of motivated the X-Men to Try to save humanity you know, I think that really spoke to the altruism of the uh, of the X Men there, where they see this virus as suddenly being so much bigger than them that they need to take action by you know by any means possible within the ethical framework, because this isn't current year Beast, of course. But I think that was a very strong part of the story, and we don't get that now. Me as a reader, seeing a human catching the Legacy virus was interesting, because the legacy virus had grown to be very, very dull and very, very convenient. It would only come back around when they wanted to either kill someone or remind us that it's a thing or remind us that the beast is working on it, right? It really didn't have much urgency to it. We didn't know much about it. Nobody really talked about it. It was just that thing in the background. Here, with Mora catching it and the threat of other humans catching it, It evolved into something that had to be addressed immediately And it was like the facilitatory sort of thing to make it to where it had to be dealt with in one way or another Is this going to be a planet-wide virus that's going to, you know, cull groups of people Just, uh, you know, huge swaths of humanity Or is this something that the X-Men are going to cure and wipe out And in that regard, it's a. I like this story I like this uh, twist and on to your point about uh, GRID. Uh, for folks who don't know, GRID stood for Gay-Related Immune Deficiency, right? So AIDS was viewed very, very differently back in the long ago, or actually the not too long ago, relatively speaking. So to Meal's point that making this a mutant-only virus, it's interesting, right? Because, like I just mentioned with the X-Men themselves, they didn't take it quite as seriously when it was just them. But when it, when it reached out to humanity, as far as they knew, that was the, you know, do it or get off the pot moment. You know, you got to do something. And I, that is, I mean, you can call that back to grid, where it took politicians years to accept it as something other than what they thought it was. Something that was real, something that was more widespread than they wanted to think it was. So that's a really, really good comparison, meal. Very, very, uh, very great food for thought. Absolutely. Uh, meal continues. The second problem is much more impactful to the modern day. and has to do with human allies. I mean, I understand that if you're trying to show that mutants never win, which I have complicated feelings about, that you can't show humans being cool with mutants. So getting rid of their only ally, essentially, I don't like that the mutants are hated to the absurd degree... But there's no way that every single human is a racist. Another great point. Another great point. Another reason why Maura was so special to readers of the day back in the day. Because she was that human ally. You know, she, It was weird to have the X-Men have a friend. And you can only name a, a handful of them, right? Uh, Stevie Hunter, Tom Corsi, Sharon Friedlander, and Maura McTaggart, basically. They're They're it. I guess we have Fred Duncan and uh, Peter Corbeau as well. But, I i mean, the point is, there aren't many of them. So in taking their most prominent human ally and most, uh, like, publicly seen human ally away, yeah, I could totally see that uh, impacting the perception of the X-Men a little bit differently. Of course, you know, the world doesn't know she's a mutant, so as far as they know, she is still, well, she's still dead, <laughs> and she's still a a top... Uh, you know, legacy mutant ally So, definitely some more great food for thought, Neil. Thank you Meal um, continues with Other than that, I love the retcon And so, until I get a Red Hood Arsenal Volume 2 by Chip Zarsky <laughs> Be mine, x lapsed. And I-, I need to read more Chip Zarsky I definitely need to read more of his work here um, Loved the X-Men Plus Fantastic Four Despite the fact that it was kind of rendered <laughs> Rendered <it> unimportant <laughs> at the end of the day and uh read the first handful of issues of his Daredevil and really enjoyed that as well. I don't know what it is I just haven't gone back to it. It's I guess it's just one of those realities of only having so many hours in the day and so much stuff to read and write about, but I definitely enjoyed that. I think he'd be a lot of fun on Red Hood Arsenal. That's that was just a fun series to begin with uh, with uh Scott Lobdell. That was that was a fun one. I think Sarsky would uh would definitely make that fun as well. But thank you so much for writing in your thoughts on uh, Mora meal. Look forward to hearing your thoughts on the uh, Cable series. Now, before we get out of here, uh, one last thing I want to do here. And, you know, I am a guy who kvetches a lot about engagement. I do that probably way too much to the point where it is uh, potentially distracting. But with that said, I really haven't gone out of my way to uh, reach out and name names to thank folks for, uh, you know, for clicking the uh, thumbs up or clicking the heart or clicking the little uh, swirly thing for a retweet here. So I figure I want to do that. I want to reach out. I want to thank people, Uh, name names, uh, which I'm always scared to name names because I'm always afraid I'm leaving people out. And as someone who is usually left out when people name names, (laughs) you know how much that could suck. But, with that said here I do want to thank folks who On Twitter and Facebook Click the little heart, click the little thumbs up And we will start uh, with Twitter And in no particular order here Just the, the order that they showed up in When I wrote the names down uh, Chris at BTO and Batbooks Billy D at Billy Delicious Dave at Lava Hog Jody at Regal Fan Jeremiah at BigOx737 Jesse at The Completist Professor Frenzy at Professor Frenzy, and Joe Crawford at Iowa's Joe. Thank you all so much for helping to uh, spread the word on the show. It really means a lot to me. Over at the Facebook group, got some likes from Billy D. again, Chris Bailey, Pat Sampson, and Walt Nealand Again, in no particular order, just the order in which they were listed when I checked on it. Uh, but thank you all so much for helping to spread the word. Uh, I really can't put into words what it means to me. It's uh, It really does mean a lot that uh, folks believe in the show or At least appreciate the effort that goes into it So thank you, thank you so much Now, if anyone out there would like to uh, get a hold of me You can do so several different ways You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics You can shoot me an email over to WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com You can leave a voicemail at 623-396-JERK You can go to ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarth.com For blog posts and show notes And you can leave a message there too Or you could join the X-Lapsed Facebook group At 90s x men Finally, for the complete archives and all the Chris and Reggie stuff, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. But that's going to do it. I want to thank you all so much for sharing your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.